Listener Production. So that is the moment neo-Nazis showed up at an anti-trans rally in Melbourne. About 30 men dressed in black marched on Victoria's parliament repeatedly doing the Nazi salute. And now Victoria is moving to ban it. And so are a number of other states around the country. So we're asking in this episode of The Briefing, what difference does banning Nazi symbols make? And how much of a real threat are these white supremacists in Australia? Their real danger lies not really in in their ability to go and Nazi salute in public. It's in their ability to recruit young, impressionable Australian men and to breed hatred. So that is one of Australia's best investigative journalists, Nick McKenzie, who'll speak all about that topic in today's briefing. First, here are the big headlines of the day for which I'm joined by Katrina Blowers. It is Friday the 31st of March. Voters in the federal Victorian seat of Aston will vote in a by-election tomorrow with the Liberals struggling to hold on to that seat. So this is the seat vacated by the departure of Alan Tudge, who was the former Morrison government minister. He had a string of controversies, including an affair with a staffer and also accusations of abuse. He only held that seat by 2.8% at the last election, so This isn't going to be easy to hold, especially given how badly the party is going now. They've put up a woman, Roshenna Campbell. She's a former city councillor, also Mm. a barrister. She's got some pretty strong ties to the community, but doesn't actually live in that seat. So a lot's been made of that. (laughs) (laughs) So it'll be a bad look for Peter Dutton if they lose the seat, but it won't be easy. I mean, as we talked about in yesterday's episode, we have wall-to-wall Labor governments Mm. everywhere except... Tasmania. So the Liberal Party is not in a good place almost anywhere across the whole country. Mm. And in Victoria in particular, look, Peter Dutton's job hasn't been made easy because the newspapers, all the media has been consumed by this story of Moira Deeming. She's the Victorian state Liberal MP who went to that rally we just talked about where the neo-Nazis attended. She's been suspended from the party but not expelled. So that hasn't helped them at all. Not a little bit. And in New South Wales, another big controversy. So the One Nation New South Wales leader, Mark Latham, has been condemned over a graphic homophobic tweet he posted yesterday, which has since been deleted. We should be able to have respectful disagreement rather than uh, hateful uh, speech. So the tweet's so bad we're not actually going to say what it said. Um, It was aimed at the New South Wales Independent MP Alex Greenwich. It hasn't just been condemned by Labor, though. It's been condemned by Andrew Bolt on Sky News and One Nation leader Pauline Hanson. I think they are disgusting. I've actually tried to ring Mark a couple of times to no avail and I have clearly sent a text message to him telling him my, my views and also I've asked him to give the people an apology. I think you've got to take a pretty hard look at yourself if you've got not just Andrew Bolt, but Pauline Hanson mm. calling you out, right? So I wonder, he, he has to respond to this. Mark oh, Latham yeah. has to say something about this. It's going to be a pretty big mea culpa on his part. He doesn't like to apologise, but this is beyond the pale. It's apologise and maybe resign. Yeah, it is that bad. Like, okay, sure, he... He represents his own party, but he's a representative of the New South Wales people Mm. in Parliament. 
and behaving like this isn't even high school level stuff. This is like a primary school level homophobic slur. Mm, yeah, and and you know a lot of people have been on Twitter saying, "Oh, it's freedom of speech," but it's it's <laughs> absolutely what? inciting hate. Alex Greenwich, to his credit, was super classy how he responded. Mm. He posted a picture of him and his husband and and said, "You know, I'm moving on." And I have a hot husband, which he does. So good luck to him. Yeah, well, we had him in this very studio recently. Um, he was moving to ban um, gay conversion therapy. And he's going to be on a crossbench that's still probably going to hold the balance of power in New South Wales. So, I mean, that's the real way to answer your critics yeah. as a politician is to change laws and get things done. And, you know, independence often don't have as much power of the, as the major parties, but he's made a huge impact on New South Wales politics. Clive Palmer is launching a legal case under international trade laws against Australia. This could be worth nearly $300 billion. Pure greed. Clive Palmer is the greediest man in Australian history. This is a man who once proclaimed he loved Australia. That's WA Premier Mark McGowan there. Uh, Palmer has vowed to spend any windfall for a future lawsuit on improving WA hospitals and starting a new independent newspaper for the state. $300 billion? <laughs> it, sounds, uh, it sounds a bit like a joke, doesn't it? I think Clive Palmer really enjoys pissing off Mark McGowan and vice, <laughs> vice, versa. vice versa. They're like a, you know, the a real odd couple. Odd, that's right. So they had a previous legal dispute over the, the COVID rules, um, which also was quite funny anyway, and probably not that funny. So apparently the lawyer working on the Clive Palmer case is the former Attorney General Christian Porter. <laughs> oh, this could be made up, but it's not. So yeah. we'll just leave that there. And the bill to trigger the referendum on The Voice has been introduced to Parliament. It is time to listen. So that is the current Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, introducing the bill, saying it would rectify a fundamental wrong in our constitution. So this is the next step in moving the whole thing forward after the Prime Minister announced the wording last week. The referendum will take place between October and December. So a lot of people have been asking for more detail about how mm. The Voice will actually work. And we did get a bit more detail um, when Dreyfus introduced this to Parliament. He said that um, it would not uh, be required to make representations on every law. The Voice's suggestions would only be advisory and there'd also be no requirement for the Parliament or the executive government to follow The Voice's representations. Mm. So still a bit vague, but a bit more detail. Yeah, sadly, I don't think it'll be enough to stop Peter Dutton from criticising The Voice and the way it's being handled by the Albanese government. He was absent when the bill was introduced yesterday. He said that taxpayers will be hurt by The Voice. So it looks like he's getting closer to just all out opposing it. Mm. Um, But he hasn't wanted to do that before the Aston by-election we talked about. (laughs) I don't know if that'll help win back those voters who've been looking at Labor or the Teals. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to wait and see what happens after the weekend. And still in Federal Parliament, the government's climate change legislation has passed the Senate. This bill will strengthen the safeguard mechanism so that our top 215 polluters will need to lower their emissions by 4.9% each year. So this is predicted to be equivalent to taking two thirds of Australia's cars off the road. Pretty big deal. 
Massive deal. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you next week. Jan Fran is about to join us as we look at uh, the banning of Nazi symbols and the strength and threat posed by this movement in Australia. So, Jan, there's been a movement around the various states in Australia to ban Nazi symbols and flags. But after that bizarre protest in Melbourne the weekend before last, it looks like we'll be adding Nazi salutes to the list. Yeah, well, that's a plan that Victoria is suggesting that they want to implement, basically banning the Nazi salute, which is, you know, the, the Sig Heil, the very straight hand up in the air salute. Um, they want that banned right across the state. So no one is allowed, well, if, if the law goes through, no one will be allowed to do it legally. Mm. Yeah, I can't see anyone opposing that one, so I reckon Dan Andrews will get that through. The question is whether banning the symbols actually makes us safer. And the bigger question around all of this is how much of a real threat do these neo-Nazis pose here in Australia? Yeah, exactly. Well, Nick McKenzie is one of Australia's best investigative journalists. Um, He's worked for The Age and for 60 Minutes. He also did a really interesting Stan documentary about them called Amongst Us. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Given your investigations into neo-Nazis in Australia, were you surprised to see a group of them turning up to a rally about trans and women's rights? Not at all, because these guys want publicity and um, this rally was a, a perfect place for them to get it, and they got it. And you know, the, the, the happiest people from the rally were, were the neo-Nazis because the whole world was talking about them. They did gate crash it, but they've been looking at events like this all over Australia to rock up in the hope that the media will be crawling over them and there'll be photos in the front pages of, of every paper and, and that's what happened. Right, so it's a deliberate strategy to look for events that aren't really connected to their causes and basically work out which ones will get them as much attention as possible. A key part of what the, the NSN does, the National Socialist Network is propaganda. And so, they, I mean, they want to to look bigger and more uh, scary and more powerful than they are. And so if they're going to amplify their message by sort of canny appearances at things such as this rally, and there is an overlap between their beliefs and and the beliefs of those who organise the rally, there certainly is an overlap, although it's not to say the groups are working together. Beyond there being that overlap, it is about propaganda and critical to their whole movement is having impact and pushing their their views and their core view is around destabilising society, bringing about a a race war and and propagating their view of white supremacy and and, what their ideal is and and it's a long way from happening but it's what they hope is that society becomes destabilised enough for there to be some sort of conflict and that's when they, they want the white man to rise up and take over. You talked about the wanting publicity, right? Wanting to kind of like amplify their cause. There's rallies that happen all over Australia on any given day. I'm just curious as to how they decide which ones to show up at and what to do at those particular rallies. Like, is there any logic? A couple of things have to be in place. So, I mean, they, they are a group of hatred and so they, they hate the other. So if you're gay or trans or black or Jewish, Anything that they see as opposed to their view of, of a white Australia will be somewhere they can mill around and get their followers to, to go and, and make some noise. It's, it's very disorganised in many ways. It's a, it's like a, effectively it's a cult. I don't want to sort of overstate the way that it, it can be 
good at organising despite being disorganised. And most of the people in the group are uh, unemployed. There's lots of loners who are bonding together to a sense of brotherhood. So there's something very pathetic about it all. But that said, they do have some clever minds amongst them and they see a rally such as this. Yes, there's a, they can, their, their hatred views work well there, but also there's this great ability for them to get publicity because it's not that hard. They look, if not terrifying, they certainly look striking. Uh, everyone is outraged by the Nazi salutes. They were marching. I mean, there's a real sort of ugly and and striking sort of component with the way that they rocked up. And sure enough, the mainstream media jumped upon it. So it, it wouldn't have taken that much organisation to, to realise there would be a, a significant a press bounce by doing what they did and they got it. And I mean, here we are talking about it as well. So, I mean, the critical thing that we must do in the media is to call it out for what it is. I mean, they're a small bunch of pitiful haters trying to look a lot bigger and more dangerous than they are. They want us to fear them. They want us to be talking about them. So we just have to make sure we're doing it in the right way. Given the nature of that group um, and all their pathetic attributes and the level of organisation, what impact do you think banning flags, symbols, and more recently, the Nazi salute will have. Do you think that will weaken them or do you think it draws more attention to them and elevates them in some way? In the short term, it draws more attention to them. I mean, they haven't got this much publicity in a long time and that's a great thing for their recruiting and it's a great thing for their cause. Banning the Nazi salute is, you know, it's a small thing to do. It's part of a whole toolbox of of things you need to do to deal with groups such as this. But their real danger lies not really in, in their ability to go and Nazi salute in public. It's in their ability to recruit you know, young, impressionable Australian men and to breed hatred. And this this whole – they have this whole-of-life view. I've mentioned it before and it sounds so full-on it's almost crazy to talk about it. They want to accelerate conflict, destabilise society and bring about a race war. That's at the core of what they're doing. So – if they can get enough young guys to join, the danger is that one of these people will take this view seriously and will see their role in propagating this view as as doing an act of violence. Mm. And that's why we're talking about them. That's why that's why they're such a concern because we have seen other attacks around the world where people have joined groups like this, they've been radicalised and then they've taken the next step off on themselves but with the group sort of whispering in their ear and they've committed an act of, of shocking terrorism and that's why Australia needs to be alarmed at the NSA. I know a lot of the recruitment of, you know, these groups happens online, right? I'm just curious as to what role symbols or salutes might play in that space. The online jungle which where these guys operate is you know, it's it's its own world it's its own ecosystem it's full of its own language and culture and it's full of violence and hate and i can tell you right now um there would be these groups because i've reported a lot about them they love coming after me and and there's i mean there's a whole sort of theme about having me murdered and mm. bashed and attacked um you know this is a Again, it's a very, very strange place to go and peek your head into if, if you're not accustomed to it. But for these guys, it's it's a home. Um, they spend hours and hours, they call it sort of shit posting, or, but hours and hours talking their own language, uh, egging each other on to, to more hateful comments. And to, what's normalised in these hate chat rooms is the most abhorrent and ultra-violent language and memes and videos 
when you spend a bit of time having a look at them, there is no wonder that someone who is who is young and vulnerable and impressionable who spent a lot of time in one of these uh, rooms would end up thinking it's okay to, to commit an act of violence and, and therein lies the danger. A real issue is how do we deal with these these spaces? I mean, they're run by large companies often who reside overseas. They're very hard to regulate but they're effectively becoming chambers for hate and sometimes for pushing you know, literally acts of extremism and there's companies making money from running these these places and at the moment they're absolutely ungovernable. Do those laws help in the online space? If you ban the symbols, that means it potentially makes it clearer for when these social media companies can step in. You'd like to think so, but in reality not. I mean, there's so much clearly unlawful language happening in these spaces. I mean, there's literally people advocating violence against well-known people in the the community that they dislike, journalists, activists, politicians, etc. But actually enforcing the law online is near on impossible. And there has been some legislation in Australia where companies who who run these uh, platforms are supposedly meant to face more regulation and and more responsibility. But enforcing it, well, it hasn't happened to date. So, Nick, you've been investigating this movement for several years now. Your most recent report was about three members of the Defence Force with links to white supremacists, one who'd even been to a, a training camp. How do you sum up the risk, the scale the strength of this movement at the moment in Australia? There is less people than I'd like us to think. Uh, And how dangerous? Well, they look pretty scary, but if you look at the current security advice from the Director-General of ASIO, uh, the security risk has been downgraded in Australia recently. And in fact, I think that the far right didn't barely ever mention, if if at all, in in the latest security assessment, annual security assessment by ASIO. So I guess the point is that um, perhaps they're not as active and as dangerous and as well-numbered as they were during COVID lockdowns when really this was at its absolute height. But all that said, I just simply, it's been an anniversary, I think it was a couple of years now last week from the Christchurch attack. One person who's part of these groups can cause immense fear and destruction. And that's what we, I think, must all remember as a society. They're there, they're active, and they want... Some of them are literally advocating, as we speak today, another Christchurch attack. So that's why we've got to be really, really mindful. Not overstate their risk. Again, I go back to ASIO's advice, saying that you know they're not as dangerous as ISIS. We can't put them in the same boat. Um, but they still pose a risk. And at the moment, the greatest risk is somebody on the fringes of one of these groups or will go and... and do a lone act of, of terror, and that could be immensely, immensely terrifying and destructive. And then that's um, now the chance that that's happening is, is, is absolutely real. It's not just banning Nazi salutes, though. It's, it's a whole of society response to it. So it's, it's education. It's actually saying to kids in schools, you know, you might get sucked into these worlds, and this is how you counter that. People aren't talking about it enough, and so it means that a kid who discovers it online Mm. may not have the tools to say, no, this is not a place I want to go. So there's so much more we can do, which we're not doing. That was Nick McKenzie, investigative journo at Nine. Interesting to try and think, Jan, about how much difference these laws would make. It's just so tricky with a group who caught controversy and outrage because you could imagine them almost using this to their advantage, going and being arrested for doing the Nazi salute. That would get them you know, a huge amount of outrage and publicity. Look, it might backfire in that sense because these guys don't seem to uh, think too highly of 
the Australian law. So what's to say that they'll follow it when banning the Nazi salute goes through, you know? Mm. And also, a lot of the recruitment, a lot of the conversations, a lot of the ecosystem happens online, and that is a very lawless place, as Nick rightly pointed out. Yeah, and I guess that's where probably a lot of the hard work needs to be done is intercepting this ideology in the online space. But I guess the best minds in law enforcement, security agencies and the social media platforms are already working on that and finding it very challenging. All right, tomorrow in your feed, the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who have you got on this week? I have a great episode coming up for you this weekend and we're taking a more global look at the world with my guest Suzanne Legina, who is the CEO of Plan International Australia. We talked a lot about Suzanne's personal story, including her fertility struggles, which actually played a really big part in her deciding to dedicate her life to this kind of work, but also about how our world is changing, about crises that are ranging across the globe, about the fact that a lot of us are tired and frustrated and sometimes just choose to switch off from the news because it's a bit too much, but also about how we encourage people and governments to think about international aid, especially at a time when most people's hip pockets are, are feeling pretty light on. That's the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. A big thank you to the hardworking team here at the briefing Dan Mullins, Eleanor Harrison Dengate, Helen Smith, Nicole Castles, Matt Kuzkari, Sarah Boll, and the socials team. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you Monday. Listener.